most important transitions that can happen for a parent is the movement of your child from childhood to adulthood. No parent, if you're really honest, wants your child to live in the basement playing video games for their entire life. No parent wants their child to be living in the basement eating your Doritos for the rest of their life. No parent wants to wake up every morning to tell their child, it's time to brush your teeth. No one wants to be doing their laundry for the rest of their life. There's a point where you, as a, as a parent, as an adult, want your child to move on in their relationship, to grow up, to do the responsibilities that they're called to be doing, to no longer be doing the things of a child, but to be doing the things that adults do. And you want them to do it for the right reasons. You don't want it because, man... Mom's making me, or Dad's making me, or I'll get allowance if I do it. You want them to do it for the right reasons, with the right heart. They, you want them to do it joyfully, to move out of the house with their own great joy, and have their own place, and do their own laundry, and eat their own Doritos. You want them to do it for the right reasons. You want them to grow up. And if you find yourself with a 25-year-old in your basement, and you're still finding yourself saying, brush your teeth, every morning something is wrong. Over time, parents have to transition from even a rules enforcement role to a wisdom enablement rule. Rules enforcement, having on the refrigerator a checklist of all the rules, and we're enforcing these rules to a a wisdom, a wisdom enablement role. In other words, the ultimate goal for raising children is to help them develop a mind and a heart that will enable them to ultimately make the right decisions in the future without the enforcement of the parental rules. You want them to do it out of a heart of wisdom as opposed to mom's going to come or dad's going to come. As a parent, you might, might want to find yourself saying, I cannot make enough rules fast enough to guide you. Have you ever felt that? Man, you're doing that? Oh, I've got to make another rule. I've got to make another rule. But instead, you want to find yourself saying, what I want to do, son, what I want to do, daughter, is I want to give you biblical principles that will guide you as you become your own. I don't want to make more rules. I want to give you wisdom that will guide you, biblical principles that will guide you for the rest of your life. Because maturity is the ability to make decisions, the right decisions for the right reasons. That is what maturity is all about. I'm able to make the right decision for the right reason. And a child becomes an adult as he or she is governed, not by an external law, but an internal law. Instead of the fear of what mom and dad are going to be saying or doing, or what are going to be the consequences if I do or do not do that, ultimately our desire is for spiritual maturity to be an internal thing as opposed to an external thing. So what we're talking about here this morning in Romans 1, uh, 7, 1 through 6 is not an issue about really parenting. This is how maturity works, though, in every arena of life, especially when it comes to spiritual maturity. Parents and pastors have to wrestle with the exact same question. How are people motivated to do what is right? How are people motivated to do what's right? Th there are long dark nights of the soul for many pastors. And I'm, for sh I'm sure for you who are parents, long, dark nights of the soul when you go, why? Why are you doing this? What more can I do to motivate you? And so we've got to ask the right questions. What ultimately is it that helps motivate people to do what is right? Or to set the question in the context of the book of Romans, you would ask it this way. What do we 
How do we achieve righteousness that God requires? Or how does this righteousness ultimately happen? How does it take place? How is it embodied in me? How does this chapter contribute to our understanding of righteousness? The question with which Paul is wrestling with in this chapter is connected with three things. The law, the believer, and righteousness. The law, the believer, and righteousness. What are the implications of not being under the law, but under grace that we see in Romans uh, 6.15? How does a believer in Jesus Christ, somebody who's truly given their life, who's a regenerated believer, how does a believer in Jesus Christ obey And how does that obedience relate to the law? And how does external obedience relate to internal realities? These are the questions behind Romans 7. So this week we're going to look at this issue in in terms of kind of broad categories of the written law and the Spirit's law. The written law and the Spirit's law. And in a few weeks, we're going to look at the connection between sin and the external law. And after that, we're going to see the internal battle that is taking place in every single believer. So as we walk through this chapter, keep the question, this question in the forefront of your mind. Where does the motivation and the application of righteousness come from? Where does the motivation, what what moves a person, and how does it apply to the life of every believer? So first we need to kind of look at how Paul handles this. Paul is, um, even Peter said, Paul writes some pretty deep stuff. He's hard to understand. So in this section, Paul is is kind of, he's at a very high philosophical level as he wrestles with the believer's understanding and their connection to the law. And the issue that has emerged out of Romans 6, 13 through 20, uh, 13 through 16 are the central reason why believers should not present themselves to sin. Remember what he said? Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members of God uh, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And his response is always, by no means. By no means. So hopefully it is, it is apparent to you that his argument is as follows. Stop presenting yourself to sin. Present yourselves instead to God for the purpose of righteousness. Why? Because you are under the authority of grace, not the law. However, the new domain of grace does not give you license to sin. Now Paul has left this connection between the law and sin in Romans 6 to use, and he used the metaphor, as we talked about last week, the metaphor of slavery, right? But he picks it up again in Romans chapter 7, verse 1. He comes back to the issue of the law, and he talks about it in kind of a principle form. He simply said, he says, listen, this is what happens to a believer. Death cancels the law's power. And some of you are going, okay, hold on a second. I've been raised in this kind of a church, in this kind of setting, and I understand this is the relationship. When we talk about the law, um, I, I've got to follow rules. How many of you would say you are a high-functioning rule follower? That's all right. It's okay. It's safe. High, yeah. <laughs> Carol's going, higher, Al. Higher. Right? There's many of us who are high 
functioning rule followers. If the rule is there, if there's a law laid down, I'm going to meet that law, and if possible, what am I going to do? I exceed it. Partially because you want a little bit of love and affirmation, right? That's, that's where you get your sense of love. Because I have met the law. And don't you want to praise me for it? Way to go, Paul. Way to go. But here, Paul is saying, listen, this is what happens in, in the economy of God when it comes to righteousness and the gospel. Death cancels the law's power. Does it cancel the law? No, it, it, death cancels the law's power. So the law has this kind of coercive power in that it can define certain actions and motivate based on consequences, right? Every law has power. Every law has power. But its power is directly tied to life, to the life of a person. So when a person dies... Does the law have any power over them anymore? No. When, when you kick the bucket, when you are dead and gone, 50 years later, you the law has no power over you. No power whatsoever. Death cancels the law's power. That is what Paul is saying in the second half of verse 1. The law is binding on a person as long as that person is alive. The law has... It is binding on them when they're alive. The law's power is limited to those who are alive. You see it. You drive down the street. You drive too fast in a school zone, and the police catch you, and you're alive. What are they going to do? They're going to apply the law to you. And you are going to pay a hefty, hefty fine, and rightly so. Don't be stupid. It's a school zone. Safety of children. There's laws to protect them and guard them. Now, what is this law referring to? Is it talking about our municipality? No. Is it talking about the kosher laws? That you can't eat this kind of food and that kind of food and this kind of... Can, can you eat pork? Oh, praise God, we can. Yes, bacon. You know? Thanks be to God. But so what does, we need to define this term law in, in context. Always in context. Context is king. One of the challenges in interpreting the, law, the word law in this context and in other places is trying to determine whether Paul is referring to kind of this, the law in general, or is he specifically applying it to the Mosaic law? And when I say the Mosaic Law, I'm referring to Law of Moses. And even more specifically, there's ten of them. Ten, ten Commandments, good. So uh, the problem is that the, word, the Greek word can be used either way. So there's a challenge. So context is still king. And the Greek language does not capitalize words like law, even when referring to the word or to the Mosaic Law. You know, when we talk about the Mosaic Law, it's kind of like the king of laws. But then there's all these other laws. So the Greek language doesn't use capitalized letters to say, hey, I'm talking about Moses and what he wrote down. It doesn't do that. That is why different translations make different decisions about whether or not to capitalize the word law in this context. For example, in uh, the New American Standard Bible, the translation does not capitalize law in verses 1 to 3, but it capitalizes it in verses 4 to 6. Not like a little bit of confusion going on here. So why is this important to Paul? Why is it important to you? The Apostle Paul will argue in verse 6 that believers are released from the law. They're released from the law. What is he referring to? Is he referring to the principle of the law? Or is he released from the Ten Commandments? Underneath that question is another question, right? It's never that simple. Namely, how does a believer relate to the Old Testament law? How, how do we 
relate to the Old Testament? Is there a connection? Or is that the old is gone, the new has come? Woohoo! We got a new set of laws. So when you read the Old Testament, what behaviors and actions are still relevant for today? My view of Romans 7 is this. Is that Paul's primary reference to the law means the Mosaic law. There are a few reasons why I believe this. First, the Mosaic law was the discussion, the focus of the discussion in chapters 2 through 5. So Paul was heavily referring to the Mosaic laws in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. He was referring to that heavily. So he, why would he abandon that and go on to another subject? Secondly, Paul specifically mentions in chapter 7, verse 7, the Tenth Commandment. Do you see it? What then shall we say? Um, the law, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. So Paul is referring again to the Mosaic law. And again, in 7 verse 12, he affirms the holiness of the law, which must mean the Mosaic law. So the law is holy, and the, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he's saying, listen, this is a good thing. I, he's, he's referring back again to the Mosaic law. So in a few weeks, we're going to look at the implications of this. Is the law good? Is it bad? Or what is it? What is, what is the law? What is our relationship to the law? But today, I want you to see this principle as it relates to Paul's argument in verses 1 through 6. The point here is simply that death cancels the power of the law. Death cancels the power of the law. So what does Paul do? Paul is kind of the master of giving us illustrations, right? Last week he gave us the illustration of slavery. And the illustration of slavery, he said, listen, listen. It, at some point this illustration is going to be a be falling apart because no illustration is a perfect example of of what I'm talking about. So I'm talking in human means to help you understand. So Paul kind of continues on in giving illustrations. He also gave illustrations in Ephesians about uh, the body of Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. So there's an illustration, but because you're human, it starts falling apart because, well, you're human. You can never fully love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? You want to, you want to strive to, but even there the illustration falls apart. So Paul takes that illustration of marriage and starts to apply it here. And he wants to make sure you know even this illustration is going to fall apart. They're, they're meant to shed light on a subject, not to be the exact representation of of what is being posited here. It, it's going to fall apart, but I want to give you a, an image, a picture of what it could look like. So Paul's aim is to illustrate the point that death cancels the power of the law and he uses the laws of marriage to make that point crystal clear. Verses 2 to 3 should not be read as Paul's teaching on divorce or on divorce and remarriage. If you, want, if you want material for that, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This text is simply about the legal power of marriage when spouses are alive and living. So verse 2 lays out the power of the marriage law. A married woman is bound, how? By law to her husband while he lives. She's bound to him. But if her husband dies, what happens? She is released from the law of marriage. The power of the law as applied to a woman's freedom to enter into another marriage is limited to her husband's life. After he dies... She is free to remarry. Seems clear enough, right? 
However, Paul really wants to emphasize this, so he states it negatively in verse 3. If you didn't get it in the positive way, let me turn it upside down and give it to you in a negative way. A woman who chooses to live with another man while her husband is living will be called what? An adulteress. But if the husband dies, she can marry another man and not be considered a, an adulteress. So do you see the point? The power of the marriage law is directly tied to the life of both parties involved. In other words, if, if you, someday your spouse dies, the law of marriage ceases to exist. Yes, your heart is still heavy for them. You have a, a lingering love and admiration and affection for that person. You mourn and you grieve the loss of them, but legally the marriage is done. Done. So, a person is not obligated to act as if he or she is married after the death of a spouse. You don't go around still making breakfast for the person who is dead after they have passed away. You move on. Death cancels the marriage covenant. And it negates the power of the law of marriage. Hopefully, you'll remember what I said at, at the beginning. This text is about the differences between the written law and the law of the Spirit. And Paul is starting off at the very top being very, very philosophical. Because some of you are going, okay, move along, Paul. Give me something to chew on and something to go home with. Right? Give, give, me, give me some application here. I'm done with philosophy. I took it in college. So, Paul is yet to make the connection between the gospel and practical righteousness, but that's what comes next. So there's three lessons that we can see here. In verses 4 to 6, Paul makes kind of this, this quick turn from the philosophical reality of the cancellation of the power of the law to the ultimate point about the law, about the Spirit, and about Christ. So let, let me show you some really important lessons uh, that are being developed. Now, these points are basic, very basic, when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Christ. But what I've learned over my life is that I need basic. I, I, I need to get down to, remember the nitty-gritty, what is really important here. Because I, I, I want to kind of move on to these things, but if I don't have a solid foundation here, everything is like a house of cards, and it all falls down. So Paul has three quick, really simple uh, illustrations. The first thing is this. Something spiritually significant happened to you. Something spiritually significant really happened to you. And I think we forget about that, right? We, some of you are into your 20th, 30th, 40th, I don't know how many years of being a follower of Christ, and you forget this really important fact that something significant happened to you. And might I add, it's still happening to you. But we forget the, this fact that something real and spiritually significant happened to you. And verse 4 starts off with the, uh, an important word, likewise. That, that single word connects the, the philosophical ideas about death canceling the law's power and connecting it to the lives of his readers. Everything in verses 1 and 2 are, were written to get us to this truth. So what does verse 4 say? It lays out a spiritual reality that something has happened to those who are considered brothers. Something spiritually significant in categories of life and death happened to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Something happened. And notice the five things that, that happened here in related to verse 4. First, believers in Jesus have died to the law. This is a new application of, of an idea that we learned in, 
in chapter 6, where Paul said, we, we have died to sin, right? We're dead to sin. We've, we've shared in the death of Jesus. Death, death. But this is a different nuance. Believers in Jesus have a different relationship to the law. They have died to the law's power. So, it, so the second thing that we can kind of see here as related to verse 4 is a believer's death came through the body of Jesus. The, the, believe, the death of a believer is not a physical death, but a death that happened because of our union with Christ. We are connected to Christ. When Christ died, we have a union. We are connected to Christ. As he dies, we die. As he is raised, so we are raised. There, there's a connection that goes on. The physical death of Jesus became the satisfaction of the law's demands. Jesus' death, he satisfied all of the law's demands. And those who are in Christ live under the blessings of Christ's work, his finished and his perfect work. They're satisfied. So we are connected by our union with Christ, and we receive the blessings of Christ. Secondly, or thirdly, a believer belongs to Jesus, not to the law. Thanks be to God for that. We belong not to the law, but we belong to Christ. Here's where the marriage illustration appears again. A believer is married to Jesus. We have union with Jesus because the power of the law has been broken. The believer's spiritual life in Jesus broke the power of the law that satisfies all the demands of the law, and now we belong to Jesus. We do not belong to the law. The Greek word for belong means to become or to be created. We belong to Christ. We, we become, we be created. We are a new creation, right? The old is gone. The new has come. Then there's an identity element that's happening. Believers no longer belong or identify with the law. It's gone. They identify with Jesus. That's where our primary allegiance is found. So, fourthly, a believer shares in the greater power of the resurrection. <laughs> Paul trumps the power of the law with the power of the resurrection. The law did have power. But the resurrection has greater power. The law was not weak at all. The law had a lot of binding strength, but it was not ultimate. The law and death are so closely connected that for Jesus to defeat death meant that the power of the law had to be canceled. And here's the last thing that we can see in verse 4, the connection. The end game is spiritual fruit that glorifies God. The reason for all this marvelous spiritual activity is not, to, is not to liberate people so that they can keep on sinning. That was the underlying charge that Paul was dealing with. He was afraid that these, these Jewish accusers were saying, ah, see, cancel the powers, power of the law so these people are going to keep on sinning so that grace may abound. Did you see the cycle going on here? And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. Rather, there is a beautiful grace, beautiful, this beautiful grace was destined to produce God-glorifying fruit in people's lives. So one of the most important lessons in the Bible is simply that something amazing has happened to you through the work of Jesus Christ. But, friends, it is not about you. It's not about you whatsoever. You are precious. You are special. You are the apple of his eye. He has bought you. He has redeemed you. He has saved you. He shed his blood for you. But 
God only treats us that way because he is precious. And he is special. And he is full of love. And he is full of grace. So you are not the end game. He is. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and as you consider the beauty of what I'm talking about today, keep two things in mind. One, something unbelievably beautiful and powerful has happened to you. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget the gospel and how it has affected you and continues to affect you. And secondly, remember, it's not about you. Because we love it to be about us, right? We kind of, even if you're an introvert, you still kind of love to be stroked and you love to hear that the story's about you and you kind of you kind of get a smile about you when somebody else is talking about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Don't make the mistake of minimizing the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. Do not minimize it. And don't make the mistake of maximizing yourself. Keep everything where it's supposed to. Stay in its lane. Here's another thing that we, we quickly, the, the second lesson that we need to learn. Your former life did not work. Verses, uh, verse 5 features a significant contrast to, to Paul's previous points. He says this. He reminds us about the, the end product of our former way of life. He used the same appeal in, in 6 verse 21. When he said, what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are, are now ashamed? What, what, what did you get from it? Really? Did you get anything from that? Did it bear any kind of fruit? Was it delicious fruit? Was it juicy fruit? Was it God's spirit-enabled kind of fruit? What kind of fruit were you bearing when you were living in that kind of life? Anything? And Paul uses a reflection on the past to make his point even more clear. In verses 7, uh, Chapter 7, verse 5, Paul reminds his, his readers about the process and the effect of the power of the law in their lives. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by what? The law. And it were, they were at work. Our, at, at, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for what kind? Not for life, for, for death. So, so this should sound somewhat familiar because in six, uh, chapter 6, we learned about the connection between the realm of the flesh, our sinful passions, our specific body parts, and the effects of death. The new piece that is added in this phrase is aroused by the law. That is not part of Romans chapter 6. And Paul adds it here to show the connection of our past and, our, and the law. And we're going to see in a few weeks. The law only added more fuel. To the problem of the, the collusion of our, our flesh. And our passion. And the physical parts of our bodies. It, it added more gasoline. Threw gasoline on the fire. And it made it even greater. So in other words. And this is important. The law was not helpful. In restraining sin. It only made things worse. The law was a magnifier and a clarifier of the issue of sin. It pointed out, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not covet. So what does that do? It magnifies things and you see things about yourself and it, it, it brings about a lot of shame and a feeling like, I need, I need to conquer this. And as an overachiever, I'm going to try to get on top of all this and perform and perform and perform. And only what does it do? It seems to bring about more death. The law magnifies and makes a clarification about the issue of sin. It, it reveals the things that we would love to keep hidden. Right? The point is, in, in verse 5, is simply that like a really bad moment when, when you lose your cool, when, when you flip out at your kids 
baseball game because of a, some high school kid who is a ref made a really bad call, and you flip out, or you get a you're coaching on a basketball team, and you get a technical foul because your anger is getting out of out of control, and you find yourself getting thrown out of the game. The law arouses the worst in us. And we would be wise to remember how quickly and how bad things can get. And without making you feel overly guilty or ashamed, I'm sure you can think of situations or or results of your past that bore the fruit of death. Anybody? Man, there are things in your life you go, yeah, that, that, because of that action, that thought, that behavior, that pattern, this, that, the other thing, it brought about some form of death in relationship, in my finances, in the way that I work, in my marriage, in my friendships, in my, you name it. It brought about death. Our godless, law-breaking actions always result in death. Just when you think, man, I... I I apologize, I repented, I am so sorry for what I did. Honey, will you forgive me? Yes. But is there still some scent of death around that action? It's often, as I found in my own personal life, it is often a lifetime of working out that issue. It seems to kind of linger around. There's the death of trust. There's the death of relationship. There's the death of a career. There's the death of a marriage. There's the death of joy. Anybody experience that? There's death of joy. And a number of other negative consequences. Everyone knows what I'm talking about at some different kind of level. And Paul wants to highlight that the former life, in your former life, trying harder or finding a new law just doesn't work. The law doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring happiness. In fact, what does it do? It magnifies your brokenness. And it magnifies your need for a Savior. It produces more and more and more death. So where does that leave us? The third lesson. You must live by the Spirit. Verse 6 is the most important verse that we've covered for the day. And it's where Paul was going from the very beginning of chapter 7. But now we are released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve in a new way of the spirit. Not in the old way of the written code. Paul restates what he previously had said about believers being released from the law and its control. And then he highlights, he highlights a contrast of serving in the old way of the written law versus the new way of the spirit. In other words, Paul is inviting us and challenging us to live by the law of the spirit. What does that mean? Does that mean I could just take this book and give it a toss? Because now I have a whole new law of the Spirit. I don't have to follow that Old Testament. I don't have to... I'm free! Is that what he's saying here? No. First, it means living in light of the new covenant and not the old covenant. The presence of the Spirit is the marker the proof positive for the inauguration of the new covenant that came through Christ Jesus, right? You can see it in Jeremiah chapter uh, 31. You can see it in Ezekiel chapter 36, both of which feature an inward law being written on the heart of a believer. It's internal as opposed to these laws written on these tablets that are external. It's now written on your heart, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. That's good news. And I will remove the heart of stone. And I love that, even that kind of reference. Because there's kind of even the Mosaic law was written on the stone. I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my 
I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and, and be careful to obey my rules. So did you notice what happens? The removal of this heart of stone and the infusion of this heart of flesh doesn't cause you to do whatever you want to do. In fact, when you get a new heart, it causes you to walk in his statutes, his, his rules and his regulations, and it causes you to obey his rules. So secondly, a thing that we can learn from this is to live by the Spirit means that there is a new ability to obey. Not just because you have to, but because you want to. Wives, isn't that what you want from your husbands? I want you to love me because, not because you have to, because you want to. Isn't that what you want from your children? You want your children to obey and to love you, not because they have to, but because they want to. And that's, that's the radical change. The old covenant was was characterized by external codes, things to do with no interior motivator or power whatsoever to keep them. There was no engine to to make it happen. There were just these rules saying, you suck. You broke this law, you broke this law, you broke this law, you broke this law. Can you see how much you need a Savior? You can't do it. Can't do it. Better go butcher a chicken. Better go put your calf, throw it on the altar, better burn some incense, better go do this, because you got to do something. And this says, no, I've got something far more powerful. The new covenant is characterized by spirit-empowered motivation and internal righteousness that is Christ. The change that God brings into your heart is such that the law that used to make you mad now makes you glad. You look at the Ten Commandments and go, that is impossible. Why did God give me that standard? It is impossible. I have no desire to keep it. And now with the new covenant found in Christ, you are spirit-empowered and enabled to not only obey but it brings you joy to obey. You see the wisdom and the beauty of holiness and righteousness. Going back to our picture of parents and their children, right? You, you, want, you want your kids to do things for the right reasons, with joy and happiness. You want, it to be, you want them to see the wisdom behind it. And the same is true with the law. So third... To live by the law of the Spirit means that what is produced in your life is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Paul's hand and Paul's good works. What is produced in my life is now the fruit of the Spirit. Because of the love that you have for God and the love that you have for His grace, there is a new motivation for obedience and that creates the kind of actions that would have been impossible before. And this fruit is an entirely different way to live. Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is, first, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Is that key? In other words, to be a follower of Jesus means that there is an an inhabited presence of Christ in you who is at work within you to create the glory of Christ in you and through you. It gives a whole new meaning to being a city on a hill, doesn't it? And it shines brightly. The fourth thing, to live by the Spirit, or the, the law of the Spirit means that you really, truly, authentically have life. 
Our, our relationship with the law is that our marriage to it has been dissolved by our identification with our death to Christ, death of Christ. As a result, we are married to Christ, and the law has no claim on us any longer. The result of this dissolution of our marriage to the law is that we now serve in the new life of the Spirit. Instead of despair, there's joy. Instead of bondage, there's freedom. Instead of death, there's life. So we no longer belong to the condemnation of the law of shame on you. You can't keep it. You no longer meet the mark. No, we no longer belong to that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but to a relationship to Christ, which brings about a real, a restored and restoring, deep, lasting, joy-filled life. That's what we belong to now. So why do we serve? Not because the law is our master, and we have to, but because Christ is our husband, and we want to. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience. It means that when you were converted by the blood of Christ Jesus, when you were cleansed of your sin, when you were granted immunity from God's wrath, and when your heart was changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that means that you can now truly live. And I don't think you get it. You've been made alive in Christ. Friends, you can live. With joy, with hope, with freedom, you are now alive. Quit looking like a somber Sally. There should be something that's stirring in your heart going, praise be to God, let's, let's go out and live. I, I'm no longer under condemnation. I'm free to live. And you know what's going to come out of my life? Fruit of the Spirit, love. And that's going to redefine how I relate to so-and-so. Joy, oh, that relates to how I'm going to be living in my work. Joy, peace, oh, ah, that changes everything, how I look at my mother-in-law. Uh, joy, peace, patience, self-control, it redefines everything because I now have life. It changes the way that I look at brokenness in my life, in the lives of others, and brokenness that I have brought about in other people's lives. It changes everything. It means that you can take this beautiful, transforming reality of Jesus Christ into every single aspect, every single aspect of your life. It means that every aspect of who you are, every aspect of who you are is transformed by the power of the Spirit. Everything. Your identity, your gender, your sexuality, your career, your relationships, your money, your aspirations, your dreams, your communication, your actions are all embedded with a whole new set of DNA, a whole new set of power, a whole new set of life. So if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I implore you, put your faith in him and stop living in death. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you should throw yourself into this stream of the Spirit's work in your life. Head first. Facilitate your work, His work in your life through worship, through prayer, through the Scriptures, through accountability, through giving, through service. Allow your life to be led and filled by the Spirit. Just, not just so that you can not do what you shouldn't do. Open your life to the law of the Spirit. Because this is what it means to truly live. If anybody has a corner on life, it should be those who are in Christ Jesus.
John Bunyan wrote this quote, and I'll close. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Church, let us live by the law of the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, the thing that we need is you. I'm thrown back to a, an old praise song. This is the air that I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. And Lord, it's true. You are to be the very air, the life-giving air that we breathe in and that enables us to live out faithful, joy-filled, spirit-empowered kind of lives. Help us, Lord, as friends, brothers and sisters, connected and disconnected, to live in such a way that we bear much fruit. Help us to find that joy in the Spirit, that freedom that we now have to live freely and alive as we are truly to live. And Lord, I pray for this body also so that we can together do this. Not as solitary individual Christians, but Lord, that we can lock arms together and help one another find that life again in Christ. That we can encourage each other. That we can love one another. Lord, make it possible. Make it so. We know it's available. Help us to believe and to receive. This we pray in Jesus' name.